2 Corinthians 11. Let's read the first uh, 15 verses together. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be led led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, In every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity To be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles. Deceitful workers. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Whose end will be according to their deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us such a great price, a treasure of great price, such a great Christ. We thank you, Father, that in giving us Christ, you've really given us everything. And what more could we ask for? God, we pray that you would fix our hearts upon Him and that we would find Him to be our daily delight. God, we pray that You would help us to uh, put aside everything that threatens to intrude and move us away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. God, we pray that you would um, help us tonight in these few moments to put aside the, uh, the busyness of the day and whatever waits for us tomorrow and help us to turn our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name.
2 Corinthians 11. I remind you that Paul had founded the church at Corinth. He spent about 18 months with them. And sometime after he left them, false teachers came. And they began to trouble the church. Many had at least begun to follow them and listen to them. So that on another trip, when Paul came to them, um, he, he found the church in, in terrible shape. And uh, when some people stood and opposed him, rather than the church defending Paul, they sat silently. Paul left, wrote another letter to them, a tearful letter. And now he is preparing to come to them again. He's found uh, through Titus that many of them have repented. But some have not. He's, he's going to them again. And he's writing to them, preparing them for his coming. And where in the first part of uh, the book of Second Corinthians, he has written to the majority that is now repentant, while the minority is listening, now he tends to uh, address more the minority that has not yet repented, including these false teachers, even as the majority listen. So everyone, there's a full audience, but he's more particularly addressing the ones who have not repented. And so uh, his arguments become a bit more pointed. His language becomes a bit more pointed. Um, he, in chapter 11, he calls these teachers false apostles. It's the first time that he said that. He's becoming more, point, more pointed as he knows he's about to arrive there. And he longs to see them repent. They've accused him of not being bold. He wants to see them repent so that when he gets there, he doesn't have to be bold. He doesn't want to come and have to you know, come with a rod, as it were. He'd rather come and find that they've repented and he doesn't have to address them in that way. As he is giving his last words in these last chapters before he arrives, in chapter 11 he begins a prepared to do something that he does not want to do. He is going to engage in what he calls foolish boasting. In verse 1, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. Chapter 11 into the first part of chapter 12 is sometimes referred to as Paul's foolish speech because of the many references to foolishness. Uh, for instance, in chapter 11, drop down to verse 16. He says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. He feels compelled to boast in a foolish way. Now in chapter 10, he had already talked about boasting. He said he would not boast as these false teachers were boasting, because they boasted in themselves, and they themselves were the own measure of the, their own measure of boasting. So they're they're comparing themselves to themselves, and doing that, they appeared pretty impressive. So he's refused to do that, and he said in verse seventeen, "He who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends." When he said that, verse seventeen. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. 
And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So he makes reference to that. Don't boast in self. Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your strength. Boast in God. Boast that you know him. And that's how Paul wants to boast. But here he's saying that he's compelled to boast. And as we saw in verses 16 through 18, boast according to the flesh like they've boasted. The situation appears to be this. He's been falsely accused and maligned. People have believed some of the lies that have been spread about him. And he can ignore the lies and risk the people thinking they are true. Or he can answer them, which will include boasting in this foolish way. And risk the false apostles accusing him of boasting in this foolish way. But as he's making this this last effort to call the people to think rightly, to look at what's in front of them as we saw in chapter 10. He stoops, if you will, to this foolishness for a moment to say, look, this this is no place to brag, but if you've got to brag this way, you know, here's what I've got to say. And so specifically, he will boast of his Jewish pedigree and of spiritual visions, apparently things that the false teachers are boasting about. And yet, he spends just a moment there. He, he mentions those things and then he turns to more stable ground because he immediately goes back to boasting in his weakness, which is where he'd been boasting before. God has used weakness to magnify himself. So let me, let me go there. Now, we won't get to the actual fleshly boasting tonight, but just so you can see what I'm talking about, if you'll notice in verse 21... He says, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. And then he starts boasting in weakness again in the verses that follow. In chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or spirit from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. And he picks up the, the um, topic of weakness again. But there's his, his boasting like these people boast. This foolish boasting. There's nothing to brag about here. But compelled, he says it. And how uncomfortable is he to even say that much? Well, he's from verse 1 through the first half of verse 21, he's explaining to them 
why I feel like I must do this. I'm compelled, he said in chapter 12. Here's some of the reasons that he's compelled in the first 21 verses. You're pushing me to do this. What is it that makes him feel compelled to say even the little bit that he says? Well, first, it is because of the present danger. In verses 3 and following, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. There's a present danger in Corinth. The people are very susceptible to it. And because of the danger, Paul feels compelled to speak in a way that he doesn't want to speak. Sometimes there's danger present and we recognize it. Sometimes there's danger present. We don't see it, but it's just as real. The people in Corinth, at least some of the people in Corinth, appear to be oblivious to the danger that's right in front of them. But Paul is not. And he speaks plainly to try to shock them and say, hey, look at what's here. Look at what's happening. The danger is so real. He compares it here to the type of danger that occurred in the garden. The deception that occurred. In the garden, the serpent deceived Eve by calling into question the sufficiency of God's provision. Here, the enemy is seeking to undermine the Corinthians' purity of devotion to Christ by enticing them to follow after another Jesus. He says it in verse 4, if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Of course, another Jesus that Paul has not preached is not Jesus. And another spirit than what you've received is not the Holy Spirit. And another gospel is not a gospel at all. And so it's shocking that they would bear this beautifully. They're being deceived. They're being led away. The false apostles also attacked Paul by claiming a superior knowledge. I mean, you can imagine the scene. You know, he, he just doesn't know. There are some things that he just doesn't know, but we do, and we want to share those things with you. And by giving them things that Paul supposedly doesn't know, but they do know, they're deceiving the people. Paul answers this in verses 5 and 6, though. 
I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. There's a a question about exactly what he means in verse 5 by the eminent apostles or super apostles. I think probably most modern commentators lean towards super apostles and maybe some of the older ones would lean the other way. But the question is, is he speaking about the false apostles, in which case you would say the super apostles, or is he speaking about the other 11, those in Jerusalem? And then you would say the eminent apostles, these who are recognized you know, as pillars of the church and I'm no less knowledgeable than they are. I don't consider myself to be inferior to them. He said that in other places. I go back and forth, depending on which day you ask me. Um, Either way, though, the point is, he does not consider himself to lack knowledge. And he's not saying, I know everything about everything. But in this matter of the gospel, and simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ... I don't consider myself inferior to anyone. Whether it be the super apostles or whether it be the the other apostles in Jerusalem. I don't consider myself lacking in knowledge there. And so I don't know what anyone could come and add to you that I haven't told you. And so if someone comes claiming to have some specialized knowledge about how to walk with the Lord... They're not bringing you good news. They're not helping you. There's a danger, you know, a red flag of danger that should be waving in your mind there. And he says in verse 6 that, he's, that this has been made evident to them in all things. They, they've heard his teaching, they've watched his life, and the two match. And there's nothing to suggest. That he's deceitful or that he's not shared with them something that they should know. And there's nothing in his life to suggest that either. We have a subtle enemy. And the danger is very real. What does it take to be led astray? From this target, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In one sense, not much. A little distraction. The promise of something pleasant. A false sense of security. Some bit of comfort. It doesn't have to be a whole lot, does it? I mean, it's not the threat of impending doom if you don't turn this direction. It's it's just a little bit sweeter over here. But it's all a lie. There is no greater sweetness than Christ Himself. There's no better place to go than Jesus. Every other direction is a direction to a false Jesus and a spirit that you've not received and a gospel that's not the gospel. It's to wander away and be deceived 
even as Eve was deceived in the garden. And the danger that he sees there compels him to speak in a way that he's been unwilling to speak to them previous to this. But he longs to see them following Christ in purity and simplicity of devotion. He goes on and says that in addition, he's compelled to speak this way because of love for them. Verses 7 and following. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. The shift from verse 6 to verse 7 seems a bit strange to me just reading. But I do think that what Paul is doing is following a pattern that he's already established in his letter. We see it, for instance, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where Paul explains that God manifests through him the aroma of Christ. Christ is made known through Paul. God does it. It's not Paul. God does it. And he does it through the way that Paul suffers. It's through weakness. It's not because Paul is so eloquent a speaker or that he's, you know, a big strapping guy and people are just impressed with him. He suffers. And the way that he responds to the suffering bears the aroma of Christ. And God makes known that through Paul's suffering. Well, here in verse 5, Paul has just spoken of how God has used Paul as the instrument to bring the true knowledge of Jesus, of the Spirit, and the gospel to the Corinthians. It's it's made plain to them in verse 6. It's evident to you in all things. How did he do this? Paul's weakness was one of the instruments that God used. And in verses 7 through 11, Paul addresses a self-imposed weakness. That of supporting himself. He's previously spoken of this. Now he speaks of it again in, in sharper tones. The Corinthians are offended that Paul supports himself and will not let them support him. You'll notice in verse 7, he asked the question, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Did I sin? He's offended them. Have I hurt you? Why does that hurt you? A bit of background information, I think, helps to clarify what he's saying here and why they might be offended. Three things that I'd like to share with you. First, 
it was common in the culture to pay speakers. And the better the speaker, the better their content, the more eloquent the speaker, the more money you paid them. Now, this is not exclusive to that culture. I mean, people pay speakers now. Ex-presidents make a lot of money going around speaking at various events. I don't know what they get for that. I'm sure you could probably find that out. I, I know. I remember um, one of the trips we went to Jackson. Elizabeth was in the hospital. Um, it was around the time of graduation. And um, Jackson State University is across the highway from the hospital. And Michelle Obama was speaking at the graduation. And so they had this huge canopy set up at the entrance so that they could pull the limousine in, you know, and she could get out. And you couldn't see her getting out and walking into the entranceway to protect her, you know. And we couldn't hear anything that she was saying, but every now and then you could kind of hear the roar from the audience in that stadium. I don't imagine she went to Jackson State gratis, you know, free of charge. They paid her to come. So we understand that. We're also familiar with the concept of you get what you pay for. Have you ever said that? Maybe you bought something really cheap, you got it home and it broke, and you think, well, you get what you pay for. That's not always true, is it? But it's often true. If Paul is coming to them with the best of news, the absolute best of news, then you could argue, the Corinthians might argue, it ought to be worth a lot of money. I mean, he is coming and sharing with us something that no one else has told us. No one could tell us anything better. It ought to, you know, we ought to show our gratitude. It ought to cost something. And Paul's like, no, it's free. And that kind of created suspicion in their minds. How good could it really be? It's free. And then you have false teachers come along who gladly receive their money and gladly heap suspicion on Paul for not taking the money. (laughs) He knows what it's worth. And he's not a very good speaker. He's unskilled. And so that's part of the issue, I believe. Paul refused to be paid and it created an opening for the people to say, What he said or the way he said it wasn't worth much. Another possibility, another thing that perhaps plays into this. In that culture, it was common for people to become patrons of speakers or of various dramas that were being put on. Like a patron of the arts today. So here's someone who pays money. But with paying some money to that, you feel like you get to exert a little bit of influence over the direction that they go and what they're going to say. And so, perhaps their desire to support Paul was not just, we want to take up a free love offering and give to you, but it was, we want to be a patron. And by the way, don't go over there. You should go this way. And Paul's unwilling to give them that sense of control. That's not certain, but it's a possibility based on some of the things that we see in the culture. One other thing to mention. Paul refuses 
their help. He will not take money from them. And then to support himself, he goes and he works in menial labor, hot, sweaty, nasty labor. And while there's nothing wrong with that, to the Corinthians, that was kind of insulting. That they refused, he refused their help, and yet tried to support himself that way. It was yet another indication that what he brought to them must not have been of very much value. So they found offense at his refusal to accept money from them. Paul's reply to them in verses 8 and 9. He said, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you evidently the work that he did through his physical labor was not enough to meet all of his needs and so other churches helped meet that need while he refuses to accept money from the Corinthians he does take money from others other churches are supplying that I I robbed them to serve you and the word that he chooses there for robbed is is an intense word. It is the idea of pillaging. I pillaged them. It's the same word that would be used of a soldier in a battle who comes across a dead soldier and he strips the armor off of him to wear himself as he goes into battle. You know, I benefited from that. Well, I'm benefiting by robbing them to serve you. And then notice who it is he says he robbed. In verse 8, he mentions other churches, but then in verse 9, he speaks of the brethren from Macedonia who brought support. Do you remember what Paul had previously said about the brothers from Macedonia? Chapter 8, when he's encouraging the Corinthians to, to give what they had promised in support of the church in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord And to us by the will of God. Here are people that are giving out of their poverty to support him while he will not receive money from the Corinthians who are rich. And it's all offensive to the Corinthians. But Paul insists that it is an expression of love. Verse 11 Why do I do this? Because I don't love you? No. Because I do. Verse 7. I humbled myself so that you might be exalted. He doesn't want them to have any strange ideas, any wrong ideas about the gospel 
being something they can pay for or earn. He doesn't want there to be any confusion in their minds about that. And he doesn't want there to be any confusion in their minds about him in comparison to the false teachers. So he refuses to live like they do and he refuses to take money from them. And it is an expression of love to them for their good. Now, this, from all I can tell, was an act of self-imposed humbling. I don't read where God told him, you cannot take money from the Corinthians or from anybody else. But he doesn't. And it's not an across-the-board principle. He takes money from the Macedonian churches. He argues in Timothy that a minister can receive support. From the people he's serving. So it's, it's not an across the, the board kind of thing. But to the Corinthians. He felt it was necessary for the, for the clarity of the gospel. He felt it was necessary for their good. And love to Christ and love to them. Led him to draw a line that he didn't insist anyone else draw. He does it willingly for their good. And in that, he follows the example of Christ. Who humbles himself and makes himself of no reputation. He, he's not forced to do that. He does it gladly and willingly for our good. When Paul imposes this on himself... It's not in any way trying to earn God's favor. He doesn't think he's better, that God's happier with him. You know, ah, yeah, okay, now, Paul, you finally reached this, this level because you've done this. It's not that. It's not to make himself feel better about himself. I mean, he says it clearly. I did it for you, for love of you. Paul denies himself for the sake of the gospel. Are there areas that you deny yourself in for the sake of the gospel? Not from sinful things. I mean, that's obvious. Unlawful things. But in lawful areas. For love of Christ and others. For the situation you're in. For the clarity of the gospel. Are there places where you draw lines that you cannot impose on anyone else? It's your conscience, not theirs. In doing this, it's for love of them, but it's also, in verse 12, is to give no ground to the false teachers. Verse 12, he says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. What began as an expression of love has also now become a point of differentiation. He does not want to be identified with them. And they are a people who are money hungry.
In verse 20, he says of the false teachers, he says of the Corinthians, as they tolerate the false teachers, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face, you tolerate it. In that devouring them and, and taking advantage of them, at least some of that, I believe, is, is devouring their wealth, taking advantage of them monetarily. But Paul has previously said of himself in chapter 2 and verse 17, we are not like many peddling the word of God. Or in chapter 4 and verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now Paul refuses to capitulate on this issue. In verse 10, he makes a statement and it is, it's in the form of an oath. As the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine, boasting about not receiving pay from you will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Corinth is in Achaia. I'm not going to stop. Twelve, I'll continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from them. Though they claim to be apostles of Christ, they are actually enemies of the gospel. And by keeping this clear line of distinction between himself and the false teachers... There really are questions that the Corinthians should ask. If Paul refuses to receive our support so that he can help us, by, you know, he loves us, he exalts us, what's the aim of these other teachers who enslave us and devour us and take advantage of us? If Paul refuses to receive our support because he loves us, what does this say about those who Do not refuse, and, and more than not refuse, take advantage. The necessity of this distinction becomes clear in the next verses. And again, in verses 13 through 15, he says what he has not said previously. They are deceitful workers. They are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul calls them now what they are. Though they, uh, they claim to be apostles of Christ, the truth is it is just a disguise. They are masquerading as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness. It's not surprising, he goes on to say, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan does not you know, come with clothed hooves and horns and the pitchfork and the tail and you know obvious he disguises himself the false teachers disguise themselves they don't walk in saying hey by the way we're false teachers and we want to lead you astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ Paul looks and he sees the danger. He loves these people and he loves God. And so he has 
for these people a godly jealousy. Back to verse 2 for a moment. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The jealousy that he feels is not a personal jealousy. He does not nurse private offense at the way they've treated him. Rather, it is a godly jealousy. Paul believed that God alone is glorious. God alone is worthy of glory. God's worthy of receiving the glory from the Corinthians. And the Corinthians had appeared to make a start. Paul considered himself a spiritual father to them. And as a spiritual father, he expands on that picture and says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. In that day, betrothal period usually lasted about a year. And the betrothal was a legal contract. But the marriage in which... um, this man and this woman were promised to each other. They could be referred to each other as husband and wife, but the marriage itself had not been consummated. And it would be consummated until the actual wedding feast. And in the time between, as they waited for the wedding feast, the father had the obligation to protect the daughter and present her on the wedding day as a pure bride. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm, I'm like a spiritual father and I betrothed you to Christ. And it's, I feel it's incumbent upon me to protect you and to keep you to the best of my ability to present you to Christ on that day. A pure virgin. And now I'm afraid that you're being deceived and led away. As Paul thinks about the relationship that the Corinthians has had to Christ, not just as as worldlings or strangers, but as people who are in a near relationship to each other, betrothed to each other. It is the relationship that every person has who claims the name of Christ, who knows Christ Jesus. We are not strangers to Him. We're not far off. We've been brought near. We've been reconciled and we are in a near relationship to Him. Betrothed to Him. You, Christian, are not a worldling. You've been promised to Him with the expectation He has, rightfully, that you will remain pure. And as such, you should have a great aversion to anything that threatens to intrude upon Christ's love. Just like a married couple, you would be jealous for anybody who's trying to intrude upon your marriage. That's trying to turn the heart of your spouse away from you. You would be rightfully jealous about that. Christ is rightfully jealous. And Paul, the spiritual father, looks on rightfully jealous. We await the marriage supper. 
and the consummation of this wedding to Christ. But we are already betrothed. And as the betrothed of Christ, we must not move away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Him. Paul, again, is concerned lest the Corinthians were deceived. Why doesn't... You could ask the question almost, you know, why, why doesn't he simply move on? These people have treated him so badly. They've maligned him. They've accused him. They did not receive him well upon his last visit. And there are so many others who need to hear the gospel. Why doesn't he just say, forget them and move on? He's jealous for them. He's a spiritual father to them. He loves them. He's betrothed them to Christ. He doesn't feel he can just let go of them. And so with this holy jealousy, he runs after them and he seeks to, he implores them, he begs them, he appeals to them, come back to Christ. Don't move away from Him. We are not all spiritual fathers to one another, but as many of us as belong to Christ, we are brothers and sisters together and we are members of one body. Do you watch over your brothers and sisters with a godly jealousy? Not a personal offense if, if they're straying, but a jealousy for the honor of God. If you see them backsliding, that would call out to them and seek to call them back. And what of yourself? Here is a great motive to purity. You have been betrothed to Jesus. Betrothed to Him. Why would you go anywhere else? There's no better place. There's no sweeter husband. Are you, for love of God, jealous that God have all of you? But not only is this a great motive for purity, but there's also great hope here. We're not, unfortunately, very good about keeping ourselves completely pure. And we entered this relationship stained. But the great hope here is that Jesus Himself cleanses, cleanses us. He cleans us up. And He has said in Ephesians chapter 5, that he will sanctify his church, his bride, and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, he will present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete the work he's begun. Paul, in one sense, is giving reasons why he, feel like, he feels like he must do this foolish boasting because of the danger, because of love to them, because of the deceitfulness of these false apostles, because of the godly jealousy he feels for them. But you could also say that, in a sense, what he's doing is in all of this being jealous for the glory of God. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. There's no one else worth boasting in. And he's jealous 
that the Corinthians give him all the glory that they promised to give him. That they not be turned aside by these false apostles who seek to rob God of glory. Well, may the glory of Christ, the hope of being betrothed to Him, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Him, warm our hearts tonight, captivate them tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, you are better than we deserve. And you are always faithful. God, we pray that every thought of you would be full of love and delight as we think upon your character and your glory as we think upon our mediator and his person and his work, God, may our hearts overflow with love and gladness to him. God, we pray that our hearts would be fixed upon the simplicity and devotion, and purity of devotion to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Good night.